I remember coming home and telling my dad I was a master taster, and he was like, well, what is that? What are you doing? And I told him I'd be tasting and doing tastings across the nation and uh, quality control, and and he said, well, you've been a master since you were 21. (laughs) This is episode 262 of Bourbon Pursuit podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And before we start the podcast, here's your weekly bourbon news update. A private barrel selection of the first and only ever bottling of Michter's 10-year Kentucky Stray bourbon sold for a record-breaking 166,000 pounds. That equates to around 209,462 US dollars. And this happened at a charity auction in London on Sunday, July 12th for 50 Best for Recovery which is aligned to the world's 50 best restaurants and the world's 50 best bars. The auction benefited the global hospitality industry in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. There were more special items and experiences donated directly by Michter's, including rare and never-before-seen bottles, which raised a total of $271,859. Trade wars between the U.S. and China and between the U.S. and European Union have brought increased import tariffs and now may see even more come this summer. These tariffs have already led to reduced imports of American whiskey into the European Union and of single malt scotch coming into the US. The United States Trade Representative is proposing additional tariffs to the spirits from the European Union. And you can take action by signing a petition from Discus with the link in our show notes. The Fraser Museum in downtown Louisville is featuring a new exhibit on Pappy Van Winkle. The exhibit displays a collection of over 500 pieces of family memorabilia that Julian Pappy Van Winkle Sr.'s grandchildren have donated to the Fraser. On display are several personal items that belong to Pappy, including his walking cane, two of his golf clubs, and his cigar table, which the feet are carved to resemble his boots. There are also original photographs, handwritten letters, newspaper columns, distillery tour brochures, holiday recipe booklets, and minutes from the W.L. Weller & Sons first stockholders and board of director meetings, and an original copyright certificate for old W.L. Weller bourbon dated 1914. Plus, lots of old bottles and decanters. The museum is open Thursday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Sunday from noon to 5 p.m. Maker's Mark has reopened for tours, with new temporary hours going from Wednesday through Sunday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., there will only be a limited number of guided tours each day, and all guests must book in advance at makersmark.com. The distillery restaurant Star Hill Provisions will also be reopening on July 22nd. Now in bourbon release news, Garrison Brothers is launching Honeydew. It's a new honey-sweetened bourbon being distributed nationally this summer. This 80-proof honey-infused bourbon will be available for $89.99. And Jim Beam is relaunching a limited edition of Old Tub Bottled in Bond. The Old Tub label dates back over 140 years when David M. Beam created the first brand in the Beam family. The label has been available at the gift shop and select retailers in 375 ml form factor, but is now relaunching in 750 ml. The release will be four years old, bottled unfiltered at 100 proof with a retail price of only $23. Now for today's podcast, Peggy was a guest back on episode 204, and her session from the 2018 Kentucky Bourbon Affair called The Stave is the Rave was back on episode 198. 
And for anyone that doesn't know Peggy from listening to these past episodes, you will get to hear from the first ever woman master taster. She has forged a path and been a remarkable inspiration for anyone in the bourbon industry. And her crowning achievement was being inducted into the 2019 Bourbon Hall of Fame. This podcast was recorded at the Kentucky Derby Museum's Legend Series. So make sure you're following their social media handle at Derby Museum to catch the next season. Bourbon Pursuit is up for a People's Choice Podcast Award, and we need your help. Go to podcastawards.com and register to vote as a listener. I know, registering sucks, but please vote for us in the People's Choice and the Arts category. It would be really awesome to win this thing. All right, with that, enjoy today's episode, and here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. When we get to December and January, we're coming up on my 15th anniversary on covering bourbon. That's right, 15 years ago soon, I will have written my very first bourbon article. Now, what's interesting, so much has changed in that time. Now, when I was first starting out, Wild Turkey was kind of like eh, a bit of a dirty name amongst the critics. It was not a fan favorite, and it didn't receive a lot of scores above 90. It was kind of thought to be like the biker bar bourbon, the bourbon that people drank if you were going out into the woods. It was considered bottom shelf by many people. My, how things have changed over the course of 15 years. We now seek out the 1970s dusties of wild turkey, and we also think of their limited editions as up there with the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection, which was almost thought unfathomable in 2005-2006. Indeed, wild turkey definitely has turned around its image, if not its packaging. Yeah, they change their packaging all the time, and they can't really figure it out, but... I think the reason why they have turned it around is because fans fans have spoken on the interwebs and a few critics, including myself, along the way, have really, you know, kind of sung the praises of some of their great releases like the 1998 and the revival. And my goodness, the latest bottle in the bond. Mwah, it is so good. Another thing that has changed is that you really didn't talk positively, positive about small barrels. See, back in the day, small barrels was thought to be kind of a cheap and you know weak way that craft distillers did to like age their whiskey faster. Well, today with the likes of Journeyman, Balcones, and uh, 291, and numerous others using small barrels to a you know in a positive effect, it's thought to be you know like a trend for the good that is now kind of just here. But it wasn't until that the Knob Creek Quarter Oak Barrel came out that I realized that the small barrels uh, have now been adopted in a large way by the big distilleries, which is ironic considering that Buffalo Trace released a study in 2012 that small barrels yielded bad whiskey. So that just goes to show you that if you see a trend today that you think looks like poop, just remember, in 15 years, it could be the cool thing. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, I've been doing this for a long time, and sometimes I forget what you all would like to hear. So if you have an idea for Above the Char, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just search for my name, Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. 
It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. It is with the absolute honor that I introduce to you someone who is near and dear to my heart as a colleague, as a uh, professional, but more as a friend, as someone I consider my sister, and family. She is the, I, I like to introduce her this way because it's more important to me that I tell you this than the other things. She's the godmother to my son, Julian. Ladies and gentlemen, please meet Bourbon Hall of Famer, Peggy Nose Stevens. Thank you, Fred. Good evening. And that was so lovely that you introduced me like that. And now I have to ask, why did it take you eight years to invite me here? If I'm that special to him, did you hear what he just said? And then I get the bomb dropped on me that they've been doing this for eight years. And I just got a seat. Listen, I told her I was going to grill her. What did she do? In typical Peggy fashion, she turned the tables on me. <laughs> Honestly, the reason why it's, it's taken me eight years is... Well, I don't have, I, I can't tell you why. <laughs> I guess it's because, I guess it's because the reason why it's taken me eight years to, to get you up here is because we have always been on the stage at other things. That is true. That and, is very true. And, uh, and as I was like looking at like um, the people I, I could choose for this, I was, I actually did look as like, am I doing anything with Peggy in October? <laughs> nope. Okay. So that, honestly, that, that's kind of how, how it went down. Well, so I'm happy we, to be here. How many, how many, we've done a lot of events together. We have. I couldn't count, honestly. We've done TV together. We've yes. done events together. Yes. Um, but uh, this one tonight is not about any single subject. It's not, about, it's, it's not about bourbon. It's not about spirits. It's about you. So I want to start this, I want to start this story out because okay. a, lot, a lot of people... When, when people hear your name, 
they automatically assume you are a you're, you're related to uh, Booker No, right. you know, because you're you're. But I I know the the other side, and right. that you carry the No name to honor your father. That's right. Um, my uh, I am related, just to let you know, to Booker No, and that side of the family. Uh, we're second, I think technically second cousins twice removed. <laughs> Doesn't that sound very Kentucky for me to say that? But uh, my side of the family stayed in Louisville, moved to Louisville, where the other side of the family, you know, Booker, Fred, et cetera, you know, from Springfield to Bardstown area, and they got in the whiskey business, and my, my side of the family got on another side of the business. And it's funny because I tease Fred no today, and I say, I'm a city no, and you're a country no. And that's the distinguishing factor between the no family. But um, what you said was true. It was in honor of my wonderful, fabulous father, and uh, no was my maiden name. And we only had two girls in the family. Even our dog was female, so we thought it was a conspiracy. And uh, I, I just really treasured him, and I thought, I can't let the name die. So I kept it. Oddly enough, my uh, first job in the spirits industry was with Brown Foreman, the absolute competitor uh, to Jim Beam. And I remember uh, during my interview, it was a woman named Lois Matus that some people might know in the industry. They had my resume and I could kind of read upside down. You know, they had my resume in front of them and there was this big red circle around the word no question mark. <laughs> and I got the biggest kick out of that because they were probably wondering, why in the world is this young woman, you know, coming here when there's a whole company, you know, that would hire her? But that sounded so far away. You know, us Louisvillians. I'm born and raised in Louisville. You know, going to Bardstown every day seems so far away. That was too inconvenient for me. So I ended up 17 years at Brown Foreman. So let's go back to when you're a, a little girl. What was... What was Peggy know the little girl like? Gosh, uh, I would say that I was congenial. Uh, I would say that I was feisty, uh, as my father would say. He, he would joke me and um, say, Peggy, you're not always right, but you're never in doubt. Yeah, good for you. Uh, so I was very sports-oriented. Uh, I did everything from track, basketball, um, gosh, softball, cheerleading. Uh, so I was very, very active, always on the go, always on the go, always doing something. Uh, I loved putting on plays as a little girl, uh, loved to be, uh, in front and teaching. I used to do a lot of babysitting and the parents in the neighborhood loved me because I would go collect all their children and bring them back to my house and I would play school. And I would teach them, you know, for a quarter apiece. They could come, you know, for two hours. And can you imagine the parents, like, loved me because I would get them out of the house, you know, the kids. So I, I think I was always around people. I mean, I, I guess that's my biggest thing. And uh, I was pretty scrawny, you know, as a child, um, but just always thought I was bigger than I was, you know, in sports and that. Very feisty. And your dad was, was your hero. You loved him. Yes. Absolutely. Tell us about what he was like in these in these family settings, because you've written about him a lot in uh, the magazine Burton Plus. Yeah, and how many out there have daughters? Raise your hand. 
Okay, well, this is for you. Uh, I hope your daughters feel the same as I do, because I absolutely adored this man. He, he was an honorable man, uh, incredibly respectful. Uh, he worked in uh, with the Louisville Water Company for 33 years. He was a vice president, but he was known for his ethics and known for his um, humor at the same time. He was incredibly funny. And even in my Bourbon Plus article that I wrote for you about Christmas and my father, um, I, t I said he was kind of a cross between Frank Sinatra and Rodney Dangerfield. He couldn't dress for shit. I'll tell you that right now. He'd walk in with plaid pants on and suspenders and, you know, a big Kelly green shirt. And Listen, that sounds cool if you that throw That sounds like you over here. <laughs> the only thing he didn't do was an ascot like this guy. I like um, this guy. So, uh, but... It, it always worked for him, and he made everybody laugh. And what I remember most um, is he always tried to teach us the right thing to do uh, and to not feel sorry for yourself and always was so good about kind of propping me back up when I was feeling down or, you know, and, and kind of throwing me back in the ring. Uh, he was very, very good at that, and he was incredibly patient, I mean, raising two daughters who were very talkative and very vivacious, and uh, he was just the patience of a saint, which was amazing to me. So, so those are just like topical things. But I will tell you, and I remember this distinctly, at his funeral, uh, I never knew truly the depth of the friendships that he had, um, not just in Louisville, but outside of Louisville. And the funeral home was so packed that they had to call a police uh, to direct traffic because the funeral home was just overtaken. And if it wasn't one, it was 50 plus people, men that came up to me and said, I just want to tell you, your father was my best friend. And I thought, how could he have so many best friends? How could, how could he, you know, if you think about it in your life, you probably have a couple best friends, you know, at the most, maybe five. I'm telling you, it, if it wasn't, it had to be over 50 people that told me personal things that my father did for them and that they were the best friend. And that stuck with me. That stuck, he was the king of relationships. So did you ever steal his liquor? Always. <laughs> but what I remember, it was harder to do because, you know, of course, being a no and uh, we loved our whiskey and our highballs. My mother drank highballs. And do you remember, does anybody remember the Jim Beam decanters, the Linux decanters? They were beautiful, weren't they? In fact, there's a humongous collection when I worked on the Beam project, a humongous collection that we put together for that tour. But my dad always had those decanters uh, on the bar, you know, at Christmas time, and they had that damn tape over it, right? And so it was like, how do we get the tape off of the top of that to steal the whiskey because see you couldn't see through the bottle if i used a regular bottle of beam or anything else he'd see that it was lower so i had to be real strategic on how to peel that tape off the decanter <laughs> this sounds terrible doesn't it how to steal it you know take that tape off the decanter and steal the whiskey and then put the tape back on so it'd stick elmer's glue is wonderful so what you're saying is if, we, if you come up with a, a bottle in your, in your estate or you find one in your family, uh, there's a chance it's 
empty or refilled with uh, oh, iced tea? It, it is empty. Yeah. But we did do the iced tea trick too. If if we, if I couldn't get in a decanter and we had to go to a clear bottle, we would try to add the iced tea. Very perceptive. It sounds like you might have done that before, Fred. No, I never did such a thing at okay. all. Okay, I was no. just checking. No. So you're um you you go to UK. Yes. What was University of Kentucky like? Were you were first of all were you the wild sorority girl that I'm just imagining here, or were you good? Well, I think I was kind of in between. Um, you know, first and foremost, uh, again, born and raised in Louisville, and my father was wonderful, my mother was wonderful, but it really didn't matter if I went to college or not. I was, you know, in the 80s, and uh, if, if I didn't want to, then I didn't have to, and a lot of my relatives never left the city never went to college or you know all went to U of L. My dad was a huge avid U of L fan, like an avid U of L fan. So he was absolutely brokenhearted when I chose to go to UK. But I just wanted to try something new, and I thought, in all sincerity, I thought that was living large, you know, just traveling to Lexington and being on my own. And um, I met girls from all over. The state, and here is truly, and I, I'm not proud of this, but I admit it, I was so naive. I didn't know how many counties were in Kentucky. I met girls from Dry Ridge. I met girls from, uh, gosh, Cynthiana. I'm like, where the heck is Cynthiana? You know, I, I, I had no idea. That's how, that's how myopic I was. So to go to UK was like this big, bright, beautiful world, and I just thought I was just it. Uh, you know, and just hit the jackpot and all the boys that were there. Because I went to an all-girls Catholic school. And so I remember, yeah, I see a few thumbs up from a couple others who went to all-girls Catholic school. I remember sitting in class in, in college and just like looking at all the boys around me going, man, I am going to have to wear makeup every day, <laughs> every day and, and dress well. And, and so it was just fun. It was so much fun. And I was in a sorority, Alpha Omicron Pi. They had to drag me into it. I refused to be in a sorority. I thought, I am not doing it. I am not stuck up. I'm not pretentious. I'm, that just doesn't feel like me. And I didn't even join a sorority till the second semester of my freshman year because a girlfriend of mine who I played sports with said, you need to come and meet these people. Well, little did I know I'd end up being the president of the sorority uh, and we built a new house on the property. And so uh, I still have a posse of girlfriends from college that are still to this day some of my closest friends. Is that, is that where the, the Peggy we know today, the, the structured Peggy, the one, the, the getting shit done Peggy, is that where she was born? Isn't Absolutely. That there is no doubt about it. Um, I think that UK truly taught me leadership skills. And, uh, and it was through the sorority that when I was put in a position that I had to manage a meeting and I had to build the agenda for the meetings. And I, had, I traveled to Washington, D.C. on a national level uh, for AOPI because they had a national convention. So that was a big deal. It was a big deal for me to travel out of Kentucky. You know, it was scary. It was exciting. It was all of those things. Um, and so... I did, I, I also joined um, or was nominated, I was president of the Greek Activity Steering Committee, 
which was made up of all the sororities and all the fraternities um, on UK's campus. And so I ended up being president of that. So it gave me this taste of kind of uh, leadership and organization. And so absolutely, that's what it taught me. Interesting. Yeah. Now, what were you drinking back then? Oh, fancy stuff. Uh, like Big Red in early times. <laughs> uh, does anybody know what Big Red is? Yeah? Okay. Um, a real special night was when we got our hands on Ale 8, because that was going to be a big night, you know, when we mixed that Hold up on, with L8 Yellowstone. L8 was, was available then? Oh, gosh, yeah. Winchester was a, yeah. my roommate, one of my roommates in college was from Winchester. Her mother would bring us cases of L8, especially around exam time, uh, because it had so much caffeine and sugar in it. You know, and we'd be up, and that's why I said we had a special night. It was almost like drinking Red Bull today, and we didn't know. I mean, we, we didn't know. We just knew it worked. And uh, Yellowstone. Yellowstone oh, Yellowstone, with, with yeah. Ale 8. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was a big deal, too. I will not mention vodka, because I don't want you to ask me to leave the stage. <laughs> I know that you don't like vodka, but, yes, there was some vodka involved. But uh, football games, here's what I remember. My sorority tumbler, and y'all are going to laugh. Who's a UK fan in here? Is it may go to UK football games? Well, you know how they f- practically frisk you now, right? We, back then in the 80s, we walk in with our tumbler that had ale pie on it, you know, and, our, and they're, they were huge. They were absolutely huge. And I'd have my Maker's Mark and Coke, real Coke. And we'd walk right into the game, you know, and tailgate and have a good time and go up in the stands all wearing our high heels, <laughs> which is kind of crazy to think about now. Uh, but that's, that's what I remember, bourbon in the bleachers. I wish you could take, you could travel back in time with the palette you have today to the young Peggy and oh. see if that Maker's was, you know, was better than today's. I'm curious. Well, I am happy to say, well, back then that was, you know, the bomb to have Maker's. Yeah, Maker's was I like mean, that was upscale. That, that we had some money to put in, invested you know, when we bought Maker's Mark. But I will tell you, that I think it was two years ago, uh, through the Bourbon Women Association, we did a private tasting of vintage spirits and, and all of this, and there was a 1980s Maker's Mark that was opened. And may I tell you that it was one of the best whiskeys I have ever tasted. Did you make you, did you, make you want to get L8? Well, no, believe me, this was liquid gold. Yeah. Uh, it, the texture, the nose, if, if, and I'm, I still love makers. I love the Samuels family. You know how close I am to them. Um, but if that product was on the market today, exactly what I tasted, it'd be the number one whiskey in the world. Yeah. It was phenomenal. I mean, uh, and we had several experts. Susan Riegler was in the room with me. Carla Carlton was in the room. And when we tasted that, I thought, my God, this is amazing. So things change over time. Yeah, there's no doubt that the Vintage Makers was off the charts good. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think now we're at the portion of uh, the conversation where people are starting to get a little thirsty. So I don't blame you. Why, yeah. don't you uh, why don't you pick which whiskey you'd like us to start out with and tell us why you chose it? Well, sure. Um, tonight, and, and I don't know how much you read about my bio, but the main part of my company is building brand destinations, and that sounds all fancy, but it's really working with distilleries to build their visitor center, their tourist attraction, their tour path, 
production needs, et cetera. So I chose three major projects uh, that were really near and dear to me uh, that were just so much fun to work on. And plus, on the side, they make great whiskey. So I'd like to tell you some of my favorite memories of each of these products in working on those projects. So why don't we start with, since it's lowest proof, I always like to start kind of with the lowest proof, and that's Michter's Rye. How many people have been to Michter's downtown? Oh, you got to go check that out if you haven't. And as we're going through this, one of the things I want to tell you about Peggy is that I like to say that Peggy is, uh, is the most influential person in American whiskey and has the most NDAs. So she's worked with just about every distillery, but she's had to sign an NDA, and she can't tell you about who she's worked with. You know, it's funny, because that is true. You tease me all the time, because, you know, here he is, a journalist, totally inquisitive, totally, you know, wanting to know, what are you doing? What are you working on? What's coming up? What's new? And I say, Fred, I'd have to kill you if I told you. I've got, because I, I am under, I'm under so many NDAs. Uh, and that's a non-disclosure agreement for those of you who don't know what an NDA is. So it's confidentiality. I have a lot of secrets in my head, let me tell you. But one secret I will not hold is how good the Smictors is. And one of my favorite stories uh, about Mictors was working with Joe Magliocco uh, out of New York. He was the owner. And to me, this whiskey, it's not just the flavor of it. To me, when I drink this, it is my relationship with this product and with the people who make this product because he was beyond gracious, always a gentleman, unbelievable to work with, thankful as heck for everything that we did. We developed their tasting program. We developed their tour path. Um, but he was in a position owning this company that he didn't have to be. He could have dictated this and dictated that. He could have been elusive. He could have been dismissive, but he wasn't. And I'll never forget, it was when you did the announcement at Bourbon and Beyond, and he stood up and said some words about uh, Michter's because they were just opening, the grand opening. Uh, it was at the uh, Fraser, And he had a thank you list that was a mile long. I mean, no executive does that. They might thank a few people or a collective group. He made sure he knocked every single person on that list. And I, I was impressed by that. So Pam Heilman, who was the master distiller at the time, my favorite memory is sitting across the table from her and tasting this and all their products. And we dissected all of the flavors so we could come up with a culinary program. Now, do you know how special that was? to sit across from the master distiller and her listen to me and what I tasted and what I got. And she'd go, oh, my God, you're right. Cake batter, I get that. You know, or, you know, granola. Or, and it was, it was just really cool. So without further ado, please take a nose with Michter's. Boy, I get that cocoa, leather. Do you get leather immediately? I absolutely adore the spice in this. It's not a, it's not a pepper. It's more like cardamom or baking spices, you know, and even though this is a rye and rye is the predominant grain, it doesn't overdo. And, and that's how you know you have a good rye when it can kind of tickle your palate with the spice, but not take over. So take a little sip and tell me what you think. Now, Michter's, again, this is like 84 proof. This is five years old. Yeah. This 
to me, I mean, how smooth was that on your tongue as a texture? It absolutely wraps your tongue like a silk ribbon. You know, it doesn't overpower. It's a long, sweet, dry finish. So to get that sweetness on the flip side of that spice, you know, it's like almost too much of a good thing. Uh, so I hope you enjoy that. What do you think about it, Fred? I've always liked this rye. Now I'm getting smoke. Yeah. You're getting smoke in the back of the palate. It's quite tasty. I really liked it in the Manhattan, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's what was in your Manhattan and I think the old... And, and you know, the, you know, for a conversation piece, like this is a very low proof point for me. Like it is. I, I don't like below ninety proof very often, but this is this is a this is an example of of a whiskey that has been cut to the perfect proof point for its flavor, for its for its taste profile. So, like, I have a feeling if this was ninety, it would taste too hot. Well, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, Andrea Wilson, who also works at Michter's. Now get this for a title. The master of maturation is her title. You know, it makes me jealous just being a master taster, right? That doesn't sound like any fun. And uh, she is an expert like nobody's business on mm -hmm. barrel and the flavors of a barrel and how long it should be in the barrel and what to cut it. And even their barrel entry is lower than most distilleries right off the still. Yeah, it's 103 proof. 103 proof. Most distilleries will enter at 110 or higher, and they purposely do 103, which is very different than a lot of distillers. So that makes a difference too. But did you not get that smoke at the end? And as I'm speaking, the finish, I still taste it. I'm still tasting because that is the sign of complexity. Well, let's stay on the path of Peggy. Oh, okay. So after college, did you jump right into the hotel business? What, what was your first job out of college? Uh, out of college was, you know, it's so funny. I went from Nirvana at UK, having the time of my life, and I was so confident. I was ready to take on the world, and I was just thought, I'm going to get out of college. And believe me, I don't think I'm like any other college student today. I thought I'd make a million dollars right out of school. Day one, first job, I'm going to get a company car, I'm going to get, you know, $80,000 a year or whatever. It's a farce, right? And if you have kids who are, you know, right out of college, they all have this thing that they think they're going to land the big one. So it was frankly very depressing. And I thought I would get into PR. That was my degree, technically it was communications and PR. So I thought, well, I'll go work for a PR agency. Well, I didn't have, I had zero connections in that, and you know, networking is huge. I knew nobody. Uh, that was not how my dad grew up in PR. He couldn't help me. He tried to help me, but he couldn't. And uh, I did the old classified section and circled things and interviewed. I, I, I even thought about being a stewardess because I couldn't get a job. You know, and that's I, not a politically correct term anymore, Peggy. Oh, I'm sorry. What is it now? It's Air, uh, attendant. Air, airline attendant. Airline attendant. Well, yeah. back then it was stewardess. So, I literally, like, sat in that uh, with, United, I think it was United Airlines, and they wouldn't hire me, you know. Wait, wait, wait. Why wouldn't they hire you? Well, I don't know. We should call them and ask, uh, because no one ever really told me. I was just, I mean, I got rejection after rejection after, I mean, I went, I just tried everything, 
and couldn't get on anywhere. And so here I am, what I'm thinking, I have a 3.4 GPA, I was the president of my store, I did all this stuff and I can't get a job. So here's what happened. I had an internship during college at the Hyatt Regency in Lexington. Basically what I did during my internship was lick envelopes and type addresses on those envelopes. Every now and then, they'd allow me to fold napkins. Um, so that was the extent of my internship. But I thought, you know what, I, I have no other choice. So I went to the Hyatt in Louisville, and I asked for an interview because I had, an, I had the internship on my resume, so they interviewed me, the catering director, and he hired me. So my first job, back to your question, uh, was the catering manager at the Hyatt Regency Louisville. It was my absolute positive boot camp. I've never worked so hard physically and mentally in my entire life. But that training, did, little did I know, set the stage for everything I've done. Uh, it gave me the tools and technique and stamina. Because we'd work 70, 80 hours a week. Mm. We'd work weekends. We'd be there at 5 a.m. We'd leave at midnight. We did. I mean, it was backbreaking work. Uh, but everything I did really propelled me for the next job. And is that why you get so angry with hotels now? Yes. The hotel managers and everything when yes. they don't service you right? Yes. I admit I am a hotel snob. And maybe you all are when you go to a restaurant. Who's picky when they go to a restaurant? Are you picky when you like service and all that and you want good service and you want good food and you want it hot? And when I go to a hotel, I'm like that. You know, I walk in the room and I immediately, what's the temperature? You know, what kind of towels are there? You know, where, what are, where's the mini bar? What do they have in the mini bar? You know, I'm always looking at the service and check-in time and... There's something um, to, because it's hard to sum up my career, because some people say, you know, what did you do for a living? I say, gosh, I've always been in the whiskey business, or I've always been in hospitality. So when both get in your system, and you never shake it, I, I just cannot uh, discontinue all the things that I've learned, you know, in growing up on standards of quality. I just can't shake it. And, and I learned that through the hotel business, what is quality? And I've learned that through the whiskey business, what is quality? So yes, I am a hotel snob. How long did you stay in the hotel business? A very short, maybe two and a half years. I uh, worked in Louisville uh, for, a couple, for about a year and a half, and then I got married. I met my husband at UK, and we were doing the long distance thing. He was living in Chicago at the time. And what we decided, was we were going to do this long distance thing. In fact, my son and I, my son's here tonight, Utah, and we were just talking about this. And there was a Hyatt in Chicago. In fact, there were nine of them. And the director of sales in Louisville was transferred to Chicago in Oak Brook. If you're familiar with Chicago, it's a Hyatt in Oak Brook. And he said, if you want to come to Chicago, you've got a job. And instead of catering and convention sales, I'm going to put you in sales you know, sales in general. And I thought, oh my God, sales is so easy compared, you know, to catering. And gosh, the love of my life is in Chicago and maybe, maybe we'll get married now. <laughs> Next thing you know, I'm engaged. Uh, I moved to Chicago. I start working at the Chicago Hyatt and I had the time of my life. In fact, a little fun tidbit uh, about that particular hotel, just to place it in time. 
there was a comedy club that the Hyatt Regency was starting at all of their Hyatts. It was called Catch a Rising Star. And do you know who the opening act was? Jerry Seinfeld. No wow. one knew who he was. And do you know a name, Rita Rudner? Yeah. As a female comedian, they were the opening act. And I never knew like how special that was until Seinfeld came out and all of this. So Was he funny? He was hysterical. He was hysterical. And we had so many come after that. So we just had the time of our life. I mean, and my director of sales loved me. Uh, and I did a really good job for him. So he would give us like free suites downtown at the Hyatt on Wacker and all my friends would come in. We'd go party down there. And it, it was a fun, it was a fun time. Now, when did you get to Brown Foreman? Uh, I got to Brown Foreman when I came back uh, to Louisville. And we came back from Chicago. I started working at the Hyatt again. And it wasn't too long after that that I received a phone call. And believe it or not, it was from a sales rep at the Brown Hotel who had just been headhunted to go work at Brown Foreman, and she decided she didn't want to do it. So she wanted to let me know that she gave them my name. And I said, well, you gave them my name? And she goes, yeah, they, they want to start a travel department, an event planning department, and I thought you'd be perfect. And what's so great, I will say, uh, and I still say today, that all of our competitors in the hotel business and the whiskey business, we all kind of get along and help each other, and that's, that's what makes our, I think, our industry very special. So here she gave my name. I went and met with Brown Foreman. That's when my resume was read upside down. And they said, you're perfect for the job. And so I thought, oh my gosh, you know, they're a pretty big company. Uh, so I was in charge of 100 events a year around the world. And I was in charge of the travel department and negotiating all of the contracts for airlines. And it was a really pretty big job for me at that age. I was still in my 20s. Uh, but I've traveled all over. Uh, great exposure to executives because I always had to work with the executives for the national meetings and all of that. And I'm in my 20s. Uh, and that was pretty special. So that was my first job at Brown Foreman. What was the coolest party you threw back then? The coolest party? Yeah. I um, mean, you don't have to tell us about the ones with drugs. but <laughs> I'll try not to. I'll try to keep that quiet. I would say it was a two-week event in Bordeaux, France, and it was called Venexpo. I don't, has anybody ever heard of Venexpo? Yeah, it's, I've been there. It's great. Okay, it's one of the largest wine ex exhibitions uh, in the world. And we had a wine division at the time at Brown Foreman, and what we did was literally do a VIP, almost like if you're familiar with the Kentucky Derby, how they used to do Marquee Village or, you know, kind of a very special VIP area. And I took French in college, so I was so impressed with myself uh, and in high school that I could speak a little bit of Fran French. And, you know, we were doing five course dinners, uh, for entertaining clients from all over. I had to pair all the wines to the food and, you know, very, very detailed. And in the planning of that, and I was one week out from going to France and the person who was coordinating at the chef that I hired to actually cook all the meals and everything, he said, Use trouve. And I thought, ooh, say, Truve, I'm looking it up, and where's the kitchen? 
What's he mean by where's the kitchen? I had to build my own kitchen. I was supposed to have a sink and burners and the whole nine yards in this marquee village. And because of my bad translation of French, I had no idea. So that was a bit of a panic attack. But I will tell you, it was phenomenal once we had it all together. Now you you started in uh, event planning, but you you didn't stay there for long. How when did what was your next step at Brown Foreman? Gosh, the next step was I was there for five years, and I was offered a position uh, on a new distillery that Mr. Brown, who I have the utmost respect for, the Brown family, uh, offered me. Uh, a, a, how do I say this? A little brand called Woodford Reserve. And they wanted to start a new bourbon that was going to be a premium product. They had purchased a dilapidated distillery in the heart of Versailles. And in 1994, I went to visit it and interview with the general manager at the time. And they wanted me to be the director of guest services. So I would be in charge of, you know, writing the tour program, you know, getting the retail store together, uh, you know, hiring all the tour guides, um, anything and everything to do food and beverage wise, anything and everything to do with customer service. I was the girl. And what a perfect job for me coming from the hotel business, you know, being service oriented, having done events. Uh, and I had the best team ever. Uh, if anybody has heard the name Dave Shurek, uh, you know, yes, and he was the plant manager at the time. Kevin Curtis, if you've heard that name, he was the assistant plant manager at the time. Uh, we worked with Bill Creason, uh, a whole host of people. Lincoln Henderson was the master distiller. You probably, I, I saw a picture of yeah, Lincoln and I. Of him I don't know if there. you caught that of Lincoln and I. And Lincoln Henderson was the master distiller at the time. We worked really, really hard getting that place up and running to the standards of the Browns. There's Lincoln. Uh, that was my women's cigar and shopping night at Woodford. Uh, and, but I'll tell you, we had the most fun. It was one of the best jobs I ever had because we were so new, we didn't know any better. And we went to every event we could possibly try to go to, black tie dinners, uh, tastings. We, we were literally hand-selling this product called Woodford Reserve. And we just knew that it was going to be successful, you know, because of the packaging and the feedback and the taste. And Lincoln, uh, it was there at Woodford that I was identified to have a good palate. And that's when the general manager approached me and said, we want to formally train you to be a master taster. And I had a fabulous relationship with Lincoln and the rest is history. So we lost Lincoln in uh, 2013. Yes. Uh, Lincoln Henderson was the uh, founding master distiller for Woodford Reserve, also co-founded with his uh, son and grandson, Angels yes. Envy. Who I'm still um, friends with. You're the great people. Yes. Just give us, um, for those who are kind of new in the business and never got a chance to meet Lincoln, give us a good Lincoln story. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription.
Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. For those who are kind of new in the business, never got a chance to meet Lincoln, give us a good Lincoln story. Well, Lincoln was a gentleman, um, and he would come to Woodford, and I'll tell you, Woodford was kind of his baby, in my opinion, and that's whose name was on the bottle, Lincoln Henderson, and rightly so, that it was his baby. And so I feel like coming from the corporate office, Lincoln would just kind of come and hang out sometimes just to be around us because we always had fun and a good time. He was so easy to be around and very soft-spoken. Something that people don't realize, I feel he was responsible for the success of Brown Foreman brands in Japan. He had the most wonderful relationship with the Japanese. And it was because he was so courteous and formal and respectful. And I really think that was it. Um, But a funny story during my training with him, and I know we don't have these today, but there are little circular glass discs that sometimes sit on top of a Glencairn glass or a whiskey glass. And the first time that I went to my first training class with him, we sat in the lab at Brown Foreman. And what was important to him is that I looked like a pro. And so he taught me how to hold the glass with the disc on it and slide it to hold it against the glass, take a sip, slide it back on. Slide it. That's where we started. That thing flew across the room. I don't know how many times till I got it right, but... He taught me from that basic to more advanced. He also, uh, in one of the first seminars that I had with him, he took a box of toothpicks and he broke up a bunch of toothpicks and dropped them in a glass of water. And I thought, okay, that's odd. And this is before I even tasted the whiskey that he would, you know, teach me to taste the whiskey. And so we let it sit there for probably 30 minutes. And he said, okay, now taste uh, or now knows the glass. And so I nosed the glass and, he, and I couldn't believe it because it was woody. In that 30 minute time frame, it was woody. He goes, barrels are the soul of bourbon. And he said, that's how important. If you think of what effect that just had in 30 minutes, think of eight years or five years in a barrel. So he had a huge respect for the barrel. So those are just two 
you know, a couple stories. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense with uh, the track record he had with barrel finishes at that time. Absolutely. He was, his palate was unbelievable. And how he could taste immediately a de what we call a default, uh, kind of either a rubbery tone or musty grain. Like he would taste something and go, the grain is musty. And I'd be like, but I mean, that was an art. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is, uh, this is a part of the interview where, you know, I think we both knew it was going to happen, and, and neither one of us were probably going to look forward to it, but this was, once you became the world's first bourbon female master taster, you started, um, I, I guess for lack of a better term, getting catcalled a little bit. Yes. For, uh, talk to us through that time and the challenges you had to face. Sure, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And it's so easy to look backwards, and I guess looking back, as Fred has taken me through my grade school and my high school and, and college, and you know, I, I was always kind of one of those people that, you know, was easygoing and hung out with people and well-liked, and I was very fortunate that way. And then what happens when you start to get a title? And what happens when you start to get a title and you're a woman, things started to change for me. Um, I did start being treated a little bit differently, not by the executives. The executives carried me around on a silver platter. They had, they had great respect for me. They were always wonderful. But things happened on the peer level. And things happened out in the field uh, with distributors, et cetera, that it was, it was difficult to prove my worth. It was difficult to not have someone say you're a token. You know, you're just, you're just a master taster because you're a woman. That's the only reason they put you in that spot. Or better yet, having a tasting that you've had on your calendar forever and somebody canceled it without even telling me. And so then when you call the restaurant or whatever and say, hey, aren't we on the calendar? Well, we had someone call and cancel and said that you weren't uh, qualified to do the tasting but I never would find out who it was that did that. You know, you, you would have those kind of things. And um, a lot of you all raised your hand that you have daughters out there. Well, I'm somebody's daughter too. And so it wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy time. It was an exciting time. I remember coming home and telling my dad I was a master taster. And he was like, well, what is that? What are you doing? And I told him I'd be tasting and doing tastings across the nation. And uh, quality control. And, and he said, well, you've been a master since you were 21. <laughs> so I don't, you know, jokes on them, but there were difficult times, but for every terrible experience I may have had, I had a great one too. So it all kind of balanced out, but if it taught me anything, and I guess this is a phrase that I've used before, so it might not be new to some of you, but, um, I've learned the, the importance of being resilient. You know, I've learned the importance of taking advantage when people underestimate you. In fact, it was probably my biggest strategic asset is when I was underestimated. Because as soon as I know, or knew, I should say, that they didn't expect much from me, you know, because I was a woman, or they didn't expect much because of reputation or whatever... And then I turned it on and shared my knowledge and shared my story and 
got the respect afterwards, that was, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. So I think what might have not been a great time for me ended up being my best ammunition to be successful. And I'll say after you left Brown Foreman, there were people you worked with who tried to tear you down. For sure. Well. For sure. And have you, have, you, have you felt like you always have to prove yourself? Um, I think when I started my company, and I've had my company for 12 years, I think when I started my company, I definitely felt the need to go in my own direction and prove myself all over, even though I was so tied reputation-wise to uh, Brown Foreman, Woodford Reserve. It was one of those things that was important to me to build my own brand, and that I did um, and have done. And, you know, I think that's probably why the Hall of Fame inductee was so important to me and, and so meaningful. Not that it's not meaningful to others who have been inducted, but I don't own a distillery. You know, I, I am not a master distiller. I don't have a brand uh, of whiskey. And to be recognized by the entire industry uh, for my accomplishments and for my... That, that was phenomenal to me. That, that was something that was so cherished and so kind of, yeah, you know, I, I think I'm satisfied. I am very satisfied. Uh, that, that was important. Your, um, so she jumped to the Hall of Fame uh, speech, or she jumped to the Hall of Fame, so I'll, I'll bring this up because this was something I was wanting to talk to you about. Sure. But your, your speech that day was very powerful, and you thanked a lot of your haters. Like you, you think the people who uh, who would have like turned you down, or maybe who didn't uh, give you that, you know, canceled that tasting on you. Why did you do that? I did that, I think, because you know, in a kind of analogy, I think I'm as strong as the proof on a label, uh, and I wanted to have them understand that resiliency is important. And, and I kind of ca came out ahead and I'm very satisfied with my life. And so I think that was probably my way of thanking them. Truly. Uh, yeah. I, I have looked at your career and I have, um, you know, in my studies, I look at what you've done and you've put an entire gender on your shoulders. You've carried women through the American whiskey industry. Did you feel that while you were doing it? You know, no, I did not. Um, and until you said that, uh, putting an entire gender, you know, that that's, feels very powerful. Uh, what All I did was start a conversation. And this is where Bill Samuels comes in, in my world. Because Bill was somebody, even when I was at Brown Foreman in Woodford Reserve, who I had a relationship with because I really respected him. He respected me. And when I was in marketing for a spirits company, I always said, we've got to start marketing to women. We've got to build a plan to market to women. They're the other half of the population. And they love whiskey just like we love whiskey and all of those things. And so 
it never happened. And I thought when I started my own company, there's something really empowering with starting your own company. I thought, you know, I'm going to do my own damn thing. I think I will do a focus group across Kentucky. And I think I will pull a bunch of women here and say, would you be interested in an organization that focuses on uh, bourbon education and lifestyle events and all of these things. Well, it was unanimous. I mean, the women were so enthusiastic. So I wrote this big strategy. It was probably this thick. Called Bill up. And I said, Bill, can I come see you? I, I got something to show you. And Bill would accept me because of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail strategy, you know, that I worked on with him. And By the way, she is the one who kind of came up with the idea for the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. So... <laughs> with along with along with several other people, along with I mean, several. there's a, the, the, those. I mean, seriously, I need like five nights to get a, <laughs> get through all the things that she has done. Building like Jack Daniels Visitor Center, Woodford Reserves. Uh, what we should actually get into one of the ones that she worked yeah. on, Peerless. Yeah. Before we get into the founding of Bourbon Women, which I've got a funny story for you on that one. All right. So you want to take tell yeah, do Peerless let's do a and then talk peerless Bill? Action. Okay, Peerless. All right, so my great story with Peerless is anybody met Corky Taylor? Okay, one of my all-time favorite clients. Uh, we worked on the Peerless Project, and the first time I met Corky, I walked into, again, a warehouse that was literally falling apart. It was, I think, like January or February. It was absolutely freezing. They had no heat. There was a card table and two chairs. And I went and met his wife and sat down with him and my counterpart was with me and we sat there and I was just freezing. And I was looking around going, oh my God, we've got so much work to do. You know, looking around and he was as gracious and funny. The man has had nine lives. I mean, when you really get to peel his personality back, he's done everything of film production to financials yeah. to, I mean, just amazing man. And that is one of my favorite stories was that one time because he was really vetting me, you know, to see if our personalities would match or anything like that. And I, I was like, I've got to work on this project for him because I just loved him so much. And then I had the privilege, and that's what leads to the whiskey, of him after it was built and open and everybody's happy. He called me and this rye was one year old. And he said, Peggy, will you come down to the distillery, and will you taste this? It's only a year old, but I want to know your opinion. I want to know what you think. And I will never forget that I thought, oh, because, you know, I do a lot of craft distilleries, and I do whiskey reviews, and sometimes when say people put a whiskey in front of you, you're just like, oh, God, please don't let me embarrass them. You know, because if you don't like it, if it nose is terrible or is, you know, has a default or whatever, and you have to tell them, that's like telling somebody their baby's ugly. Yeah. I mean, it just, it really is. And so you really have to be mindful of that. So I was like, oh, please, I just love this man. I just don't want to tell him bad news. And I noticed that at one year, I said, my God, Corky, this, I got nuts. Do you all get just ch chopped roasted nuts? This has such complexity huge caramel. The caramel practically punches you in the face. And I said, this is going to be a winner. This, and he goes, now don't you tell me that. He goes, don't you tell me that just because you like me and you worked on this project. I said, Corky, I would not. In fact, I wouldn't say a thing. I would just say, nice. 
Oh, it's interesting. I went on and on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the real word, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's the word you know if we don't really like it. Yeah. It, when a whiskey expert says interesting, that's when you know it's not very good. Um, but I get some honey in the back. I get sorghum. Huge it's, oak notes. It's such a unique black rye. Black pepper. It's such a unique rye. Do you all get that? Some black pepper. Now go ahead and taste it. This is 106 proof. I've been tasting, by the way. I know you have. You've been cheating. Yeah. Um, for 106 proof, velvet. I mean, it's just lovely. So I told him, I said, you have a winner. And little did I know, one year later when they brought this out, you voted it best craft. Yeah. Tell them the title. Yeah, it was, the, uh, it was my best craft whiskey uh, for that year. And yeah, uh, yeah it, it came in number four for my overall tasting. And it couldn't happen to a better family. Yeah. Uh, they, they deserve everything. Caleb Kilburn is a genius. Their master distiller. I'm so impressed with him, uh, in his knowledge at such a young age. And he, he's just wonderful to work with. In so. fact, you all uh, have a magazine there. That's the, uh, Bourbon oh, is Plus. Oh, he in the one? Is he in that, that one? Yeah. There's a feature of Caleb Great. in there. Yeah. You he's, open it up and you're like, is this kid 12? Or? <laughs> no. it, it was just he's amazing. Like, and he was so, it, it, just a cute story. He sat by me during, while I was tasting this. And I think they also brought Jim Rutledge in maybe at some point and tasted it. But he was like wide-eyed and nervous about what I was going to say and, and everything. And, and when I told him, I mean, it was like such a relief, I think, you know, to hear that positive feedback. And it was wonderful. Uh, and I was fortunate that they brought me back to taste their bourbon later, you know, at an early stage. Well, I mean, I can't say enough good things about Peerless. Uh, the one thing, the only area they ever get any kind of ridicules or pricing on their on their bottle, you know, they're like at 65 to $99 a bottle, and people don't tend to like to pay that on a new product. I guess so, but we sure do buy Pappy and products yeah. like that. And I will tell you, this is a great whiskey. It, it is. Peerless is, this uh, is Peerless a great, is great whiskey. Peerless Truly. is great. They're Worth every penny. So let's go into like um, the creation of Bourbon, Bourbon Women. Women. Oh, okay. So back to Bill Samuels then. Yeah. Uh, so I bring this big strategy deck in and I was kind of nervous because I didn't, you know, Bill, if you haven't met him, you know, he'll tell you straight. I mean, there is no, no slicing and dicing the information. I mean, it's right between the eyes. So I'm telling him my ideas, et cetera, and he, and he stopped. You know, after I finished, I said, what do you think? And he looked at me and he goes, you know, Peggy, this is exactly what we need. He goes, we, and he put it the best. He put it the best way, and I have held on to this statement throughout, how many years have we been? Eight years now? He said, we need to start a conversation with women. We need to start a conversation. And I thought, wow, that is genius, really. He's not saying we need to sell women or we need to sell whiskey to women or we need to be condescending and make commercials for women. He's saying we need to have a conversation because we weren't talking to him. And that stuck with me. And, and from there, that, yeah. They just showed oh. the barrel head, oh, the, the from creation the of it. Yeah. Said 2011, so that means the conversation happened in 2010. Yeah, it's been 10 years. Oh, it's been 10 years, my God! Wow. Um, and now we we're in 10 cities across the nation. Bourbon women. We have thousands of women. 
Uh, and the inaugural event was at the governor's mansion and uh, with Eric Gregory, who's in that photo. Uh, and there's Rob Samuels there. Uh, and so we have really received support. My first year in doing it, when I would go to the different distilleries and say, hey, we've got this new group, and would you help us sponsor things? And, you know, I, I, I got a little bit of, you know, good for you, but then the other side was, isn't this cute? A women's group, a women's drinking club is what they called it. Oh, so it's a women's drinking club. I'm like, no, it is not a women's drinking club. This is going to be a movement. Uh, because like I said, it's the other half of the population. And so fast forward to today, we get so much support from the industry. Uh, we get letters from consumers because it's largely a consumer group, but a lot of industry people come to it. We've done over 250 events across the nation. We have an annual conference of 300 plus women who come right here to Louisville, Kentucky in August. Men are invited too. And I'll tell you why we're getting more and more men coming to this conference because we do great events. We do excursions, workshops, we have speakers, panels, culinary events. Pajama night. Pajama night. Uh, we do all kinds of things. That now, are, men invite, are men invited to pajama night? It depends on what kind of pajamas they wear. <laughs> so let's go into that, those early conversations uh, sure. of like when you were telling people about bourbon women. I, I recall one with a particular uh, writer that um, kind of sparked some interest later on. Which one? Well, when we met. Oh, you. Yeah, oh. Go, ahead, go ahead and tell them that <laughs> oh, story. Well, can I tell it? Go ahead. I, okay. I'll let you tell the okay. story. So, so really and truly how Fred and I first met uh, is when we talked about the inaugural event at the governor's mansion. And Fred being part of the press was invited to the event. The first lady spoke at the event. And we all got up, you know, the first lady, myself, Eric Gregory, who's the president of the Kentucky Distillers Association, talking about how women truly have been part of this industry for over 200 years. We just never got credit for it. You know, we worked in the fields. We worked in the bottling house. You know, we worked in the office. You know, but it, they were just kind of backburnered um, because it was all the men that kind of technically made the whiskey. So that was the star of the show. So Fred being Fred was in the audience, and he didn't believe me. In fact, I think your words were, you're full of shit, is, is what you told me. <laughs> That's true. So Fred went from there to starting to fact check me, to make sure that I was like telling the truth, and my research was correct, and, and all of this. And, uh, and I didn't know him very well. I mean, I really didn't. And it comes to, find, I mean, I think the, the moral of the story here is you ended up being inspired by what you found. And what'd you write? I wrote a book called uh, Whiskey Women, the untold story of how women save bourbon, scotch, and Irish whiskey. And that really launched, I think, the series of all your books. And I never to this day have gotten a commission <laughs> from this man, not even a free dinner. I just want to point that out tonight. It took me eight years to get on this stage. Well, you know, um, you're family now, so. <laughs> but this is how relationships in our industry go. You know, I mean, they just, they develop and they grow. And our friendship has certainly done that. You know, I remember that time. And yes, I was, uh, this was when I was, I was 
at this time, I was in a position as a whiskey writer, you know, uncovering people's shenanigans. Yeah. And my God, there is so much bullshit in whiskey. Yes. You know, I mean, if you're just now joining us, there's more bullshit per square inch on a bottle of whiskey than in political ads. It's gotten better. It's definitely gotten better. But so unfortunately, like when, when this, this, actually, no, it's, it's a good time it, for me to learn this because what I did was I heard her speak about this and I fact-checked everything. And I looked and I found more and I found more women and more women and more women. And I was like, why hasn't anyone ever written about this? And I was so nervous about writing this book because I knew I would get called out if I, um, you know, kind of like storied on about somebody or something like that. So that's why in my, everything is footnoted. Like I will have like thousands of, I have like a couple hundred You were hundred incredibly footnotes. detailed on that book. And, um, and so all anyone's ever said is it's boring. So I'll take that. Well, I'm telling you what it did for us. It catapulted the awareness of women in the industry. And we took Fred's platform uh, and just kept building upon that, truly. And it's been amazing. It has been amazing. From the creation of Bourbon Women, at that time there were no female master distillers. Correct. Now we have, we have several in Kentucky yeah. and throughout the country. Um, you know, women are in, in more executive positions than ever Absolutely. in American whiskey. Absolutely. And now you have distilleries seeking women for particular positions. I, I cannot tell you how many phone calls I receive from different distilleries that want me to give names of women because they want more women in their company or on their team and a production level. So... I can't believe what has been accomplished. It's definitely gotten better. We still have a long way to go. I'm not going to, you know, sugarcoat that. But at the same time, I think Bourbon Women has been a catalyst uh, to that awareness. And we've connected people. And we have uh, started the conversation that Bill Samuels told me we needed. And it's been an incredible journey with, uh, with Bourbon Women. You are you. You already mentioned you are in in ten cities, but now after like bringing women to the forefront, I think now we're getting to see uh, after so after this great time in high school and college, in the hotel business, Brown Foreman becoming the first female master taster, overcoming um, you know you didn't say it but I will a misogynistic culture, uh, overcoming that empowering women through bourbon women i think now we're finally getting to see the real peggy no stevens and you can grab that magazine in front of you or you could go subscribe to the spirits network and you can see the the peggy that her family has known and loved forever and that's you're becoming a personality well thank you i uh <laughs> my family would probably always say i was but I think I'm just having more fun. Uh, everything I've ever done has been because I'm interested and curious and passionate about it. I mean, certainly. And I think I'm at the point in my life and my career that I'm, I'm, I've proven myself in so many different ways that I never knew I could. And now it's time to have fun. Uh, and not that I haven't had some fun in the past, but... 
doing things and putting myself out there like I never had before. You know, like the Spirits Network uh, doing a series of videos. If you're not familiar, you can Google the Spirits Network. It is Any like, subscribers in the house? It is like... No. The it's like the food network of spirits where you watch all this great content. Fred's on it. I'm on it. Several experts. And then you can actually purchase the bottle that we talk about and have it delivered to your home. So that's been really exciting. Um, I've, I write for a couple magazines, you know, I've never done that before. Uh, so that was kind of fun to start. Uh, but I still have so much juice left in me that, um, I think the next decade for me is going to be quite interesting. Well, I'll agree to that, and I want to do this. I want to talk about this one. This is uh, this is Baker's uh, Single Barrel. Everybody grab this. If you haven't read about this, this is one of the hot new releases of, um, of the last six months. And I want everyone here, I want to open it up to questions here in a moment, but I want everyone to raise their glass to a woman who has opened many doors to many not just women, but people of all race, color, and orientation. This is a woman who has been a disruptor in the industry in a way that you could never even possibly imagine. And she's among the best friends I've ever had in my life. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the queen of American whiskey. <laughs> Peggy No Stevens. Thank you, Fred. Thank you all. You all have been absolutely fabulous. And uh, as you can see, I've had quite a journey. But it's been a wonderful journey. And I just feel honored and proud to have been part of this industry for so many years. And can you believe, you know, when I started in the industry, I remember at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, we could have two round tables and put every bourbon in the entire world that was produced on two round tables. That's all. That's all it was. Wow. Now, consider that and where we are today. There's a lot of brands out there. Yeah, it's been fun to watch. It's been fun and to watch. And you've worked on how many? Just give us a number of how many distilleries you've worked on. Well, brand destination distilleries, 30. I've, I, and that's not including what I did when I worked at Brown Foreman. Okay. So if I include that, then it's more than that. Uh, but I do a lot of tasting profiles for people in craft distilleries. Sometimes they'll just hire me to do that. Uh, but speaking of profile... Do you mind if I know this? Please do. I already sipped on it. See, I get brown sugar for days on this single barrel. And I I wanted to taste this. And I'll, uh, again, I like to tell you my story of why I picked this. I, I had the uh, good fortune of working on the Jim Beam American Stillhouse. How many have worked on that or have seen that or toured that? Okay, American Stillhouse. Then we did the Urban Stillhouse that's downtown. Uh, and I also did their Global Innovation Center. So we did all the experiential elements of the Global Innovation Center. But the reason I chose Bakers is because in all that time that I have uh, been working with Beam folks, and who are great to work with, by the way, um, I always thought Bakers was the unsung hero, right? And this goes back years. I remember working on that project. And so this, I'm going back like eight years, probably 10 years that it's been open. And... I always loved it. 107 proof, brown sugar for days, raisins, dark fruits, stone fruits. I mean, just luscious. Love it. And I just felt like it never got any credit. And it goes back, if you're not familiar with how Baker started, it was part of the small batch collection of Jim Beam back in the 80s. 
It was the brainchild of Booker and a woman who never, I don't think, got credit for it, but I'm going to tell you right now who she is, Kathleen Benedetto. It took me four years to learn how to say her name. She's in the Hall of Fame now. She's now in the Hall of Fame, partly because she started the small batch collection in a marketing standpoint. So, you know, the, the small batch collection was Basil Hayden, Baker's, Booker's, and Knob Creek. And Baker, I don't know whether it was because it was the packaging, always looking like it was in a wine bottle or whatever, but it just never got the attention. And I was like, this is one of the best products you all make. You need to relaunch it. You need to re... And now they are. And I'm thrilled for them because especially bringing out a single barrel, I think it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. So are you all getting the brown sugar note that I am? Wow. See, that is, that's just juicy. Well, if there's not any other questions, uh, I, I must have scared them all. That they're well, not asking no, questions. I, you actually you, you Did didn't leave many you things uh, to to ask. You, oh, okay. you you were very thorough in your uh, explanations. Um, it, it's a good thing, you know. I, I didn't bring up our derby parties, so. Oh, that is uh, a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Fred uh, and I went to the derby together one time, <laughs> and the last time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll go to derby. Yeah, I don't remember much of it, but um, <laughs> let's just say this woman can pack a flask. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. again, Peggy, you are an inspiration uh, and you. a mentor, and I am uh, so excited to see what this next decade holds. I am Ladies too. and gentlemen, Peggy No Stevens, Bourbon Thank Hall you. of Famer. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs>